It's May 21st, 2017, and this is episode 331 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with some updates before today's show. You can now visit token.fm or tokenfm.com for a look at our awesome new webpage as we near product launch. Whether you're an artist, fan, or speculator, you can join the early Slack community for sneak peeks, chats, updates, and testing opportunities. On that note, I'm looking for an engineer experienced with Ethereum smart contracts to consult or potentially join the Tokenly team moving forward. Introduce yourself today by emailing work at tokenly.com for more information. And now, we join Andreas, Stephanie, and Jonathan Mohan for today's conversation. Enjoy the show. So pretty recently, there had been the discussion about ASIC boost and minor incentives that are not explicitly in the block reward or the transaction fee that are sort of meta incentives for miners to behave in ways that aren't directly um, associated or tied to incentives in the blockchain. And that sort of reminded me of something last year, or it was a year before that, that Peter Todd had discussed, which was the chain anchors argument, which was an MIT proposal that they completely disavowed once it became public, which was the notion of applying AML and KYC by just incentivizing the miners to do it by paying them. So if there was an organization that said, let's put 50 or $100 million aside and pay miners over the next year, double what the uh, block reward is, and then before you know it, 5% plus what the block reward is, excuse me, which would essentially double their net income. And then you would effectively price out anybody who would be mining indiscriminate blocks, sort of made me think about a, a vulnerability that Bitcoin has as a network, which is to the sort of meta incentives that you can give miners to act in ways that aren't to the best interest of the network. I remember expressing this to you guys and really wanted Adam here, I'm sorry, Andreas here to um, sort of poke holes at this notion or to affirm my fears. This kind of idea works primarily because the one thing you're asking miners to do is entirely within the consensus rules, simply censor transactions. And that's one of the powers that miners do have. They can't change the consensus rules. They can't make invalid transactions valid on their own without collaboration from the other consensus constituencies, do things like that. They can't expand the validity rules, but they can censor transactions. So they can stop accepting transactions that are otherwise valid and only accept a subset of transactions. Such action would be perceived by many, if not most, as a hostile act against the network. And on a theoretical basis, it works. But uh, on a practical basis, you have to account for rewarding the miners for slaughtering the goose that lays the golden egg. Because it's not just a matter of giving them reward. It's a matter of, as they do this, users start abandoning the network or they take countermeasures. Aren't they doing that now? I mean, isn't the whole point that SegWit hasn't been implemented is because potentially miners have a quote-unquote optimization that allows them to make more money than if SegWit got activated? Yes, but the lack of SegWit does not fatally compromise one of the fundamental principles of the network. Introducing censorship into the transactions based on the presence or absence of KYC AML would, would lead to direct countermeasures. And already, even, even with just this ASIC boost revelation, the immediate response was proposed user-activated soft fork to disable that capability to realign the incentives correctly. 
which disables covert ASIC boost only by requiring a base commitment. And the notion that I fear as it relates to systems like chain anchors or, or things like ASIC boosts are doing is that as long as you can create an externalization to the cost, but an internalization to a benefit, you could have miners race to the bottom in a negative feedback loop. And when it comes to systems like specifically Chainanchor, if an adversary had Bitcoin and we're paying you know, an extra 10% of the block reward or 15%, then you have miners who are only allowing KYC transactions getting triple the net income or net profit rather, excuse me, would be able to outcompete ones because of the readjusting difficulty rate who weren't accepting that to the point where non-compliant mining pools would be outcompeted on the margin. And then if you get the supermajority of the network mining KYC blocks, just as with the Silk Road, where they applied that notion of transfer's intent to Ross Albrecht because he was maintaining a platform, but it was all the bad actors that were on it. If there's 5% of the mining pool that's doing all the non-KYC transactions, you could just expressly go after that guy because the rest of the network is operating within the law. Yeah, presumably if everybody sat on their thumbs and didn't do anything while all of this was happening and the entire economic activity consensus constituency of Bitcoin just sat there and accepted this fate without any reaction, sure. The more likely reaction, however, would be that if you had this degree of censorship, People would abandon Bitcoin in in droves. Uh, the price would would drive down dramatically. It would put miners out of business in general. It would create enormous losses for miners, and very quickly you'd see countermeasures being taken in the network against miners who were censoring transactions. But I, I think that's happening just at a much slower rate as it relates to what's what's occurring with SegWit activation, because Bitcoin's diminishment is not measured in terms of absolute relative diminishment, but in unactualized gain. So if you look at how the market has grown disproportionate to Bitcoin, Bitcoin had, I think it was a year ago, 80% of the total cryptocurrency market cap, and now it's at 65. So in terms of absolute majority, people are fragmenting out to these other systems because Bitcoin has these meta incentives preventing the miners from doing what's maximal for the network, and it's to the detriment. Bitcoin might be going up to 1800 today, which is rather crazy. Yes, it's failing upwards. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's failing upwards. And, you know, maybe Bitcoin will be the Mark Cuban of cryptocurrencies where it gets to, it gets to fail upward all the way to being a billionaire, but that doesn't mean it succeeded. <laughs> Let me ask you this. When you look at those market cap projections, are you aware of what they're counting in those market cap projections? Let me give you an example. So just a couple of weeks ago, a token, an ICO token on Ethereum raised about $17.5 million in about 15 minutes based on an ICO where only 1% of the tokens were made available to the market. And so on that raise of, I think it was $17.5 million, I, I don't remember the exact number, the token was valued as a market cap as a whole at 300 million, one third of a billion dollars, right? So this is a token that exists in support of much more than a white paper, uh, that has no users or uses, that has no practical applications, that's traded on a couple of exchanges, trade Ethereum tokens, and has raised 17 and a half million, but it's market capitalization is actually 300 million. And that's because 
what's counted as value there is the total amount of tokens that exist, even though they are not traded. They're not part of the liquidity of that token. So that's almost a bit like counting Bitcoin's market capitalization based on the 21 million coins that will eventually exist. Or in ETFs where they count the recoverable amount of gold in a vein and trade on that in advance. Right. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I would say that, again, 99% of that has been held by the founders on the basis of a white paper and creates a lot of exuberance in the in the ICO. But whether that actually means that that token has 300 million, I would consider that a dubious proposition at best. I would say it doesn't. In fact, I wouldn't even give it a 17 million mark cap because I don't think that's really sustainable, but that's a whole other, the market will decide that later, but it counts as 300 million. And you do that across 15 tokens and suddenly you've got this inflation of the valuation of tokens based on effectively what is pre-mined, not available, illiquid tokens with very little trading. You know, you sell five tokens out of a million that you've issued and you sell them for $10 each and you've got a 10 million valuation when you've raised 50 bucks. And, and more inappropriately, if we applied the $1,800 Bitcoin price to all 21 million when there are only 14 million in supply. Right. But we don't. In fact, Bitcoin's market cap is based on what has been issued. And not all of it is liquid and not all of its circulation, but a significant percentage of it is. So when people say the market dominance of Bitcoin has dropped from 80-something percent to 60-something percent, um, I think the scientific response to that would be bullshit. And, you know, the idea that people are flocking to the alts or exiting Bitcoin because of problems with transaction confirmation or because Bitcoin isn't advancing or innovating. Again, I think that's a very short term view. It's not, in my opinion, backed by the facts. And so I'm really not worried, not worried that somehow this is happening. We have contention. And we have contention over the activation of a feature because Bitcoin isn't intended to be the easy to change blockchain. It's, it's intended to be the hard to change blockchain. And it's hard for both sides, meaning that miners find it hard to do things that are outside of the consensus rules or even outside of the interests of the economic majority. The lack of activation of SegWit is simply not causing enough of a concern among most people in Bitcoin because Bitcoin continues to work as is pretty damn well. And so I don't, I don't really see this issue that the blackmailed into slaughtering the goose that lays the golden eggs. I really don't see it. There's countermeasures the network can take in those cases. There's the impact on the price. Their incentives are simply not aligned. And even though you hear a lot of bravado from a lot of miners about what they will do to exert their influence, Influence exists only because it's not exerted. I make the analogy that it's a bit like the Queen of England. She can dissolve Parliament whenever she wants, as long as she doesn't actually start dissolving Parliament, because then she would very quickly use that power, right? It's best used if not exercised, just sitting there. And it's the same with any of the constituencies of consensus in Bitcoin. Everybody thinks they have power in this system, but they only have power as long as they respect everybody else's consensus rules. And the moment they try to exercise it outside of consensus, they see how quickly that evaporates and you'll get countermeasures. So I really don't see that, especially for something like KYC and censorship of unidentified transactions, which would lead people to 
abandon Bitcoin or to do a proof of work algorithm change in order to shut out these miners. You know, I think the point that Andreas was making is that the system is self-correcting if it's visible. So a problem like the one you're talking about with chain anchor, it can't really exist if it's not visible. But a problem like you're talking about the secret method behind ASIC boost or the hidden method of ASIC boost, because it can't be detected as easily, it's a lot harder for the system kind of to look ahead and to correct. So I think that's kind of the difference between those two things specifically is that the visibility of a problem in the cryptocurrency space basically has direct correlation to how much outrage it generates and how much outrage is generated has a lot of impact in terms of how the space goes forward. And we see that even in areas where both sides are generating outrage, the solution is nothing happens, right? The solution is just we keep going as we were before. So I think that you're right. There are problems with incentives that align, but it all has to do with that conspiracy thing. And if you think about it, the conspiracy thing is only possible because we've got relative minor pool centralization. So there are relative to, say, four years ago, a lot fewer targets you need to coerce or have an agreement with behind the scenes in order to enact something like that secretly. So I'm concerned about things that happen that you can't see until it's too late. I'm less concerned about things like chain anchor that seems like in order for it to become big, necessarily, it would have to be visible. These kinds of dynamics exist in any system where there are incentives and profit motives to exploit power and control. And so the basic proposition that Bitcoin brings to the table is that it is a system where it is least easy to co-opt from that perspective. It's a lot easier to do that in the banking system, for example. It's a lot easier to do that in the stock market to collude and fix the LIBOR rate or fix the gold markets or the silver markets or any of the commodity markets. And we see that happening again and again. The proposition, I think, is we have a system here that so far has proven to be more resilient to that kind of co-option. It won't continue to be that unless people are willing to work inside that adversarial system and protect it. And we'll see which mechanism of consensus gives us the best results in terms of being resilient in an adversarial system. But of course, every adversarial system has the possibility of someone co-op it and control it. But the proposition with Bitcoin is that it is the most resilient to that kind of adversarial influence. We'll see. It requires constant vigilance. Right. And I, I think that I agree with your interpretation. And I just extend out its conclusion a little further, which is you don't need to be paranoid about Bitcoin being co-opted because there's this entirely disseminated framework of people who are paranoid about Bitcoin being <laughs> co-opted. And like my Bitcoin, I prefer my paranoia to be a bear bond instrument that I possess, not somebody else. Um, so maybe I'm just one of those people who are paranoid on behalf of others and Bitcoin's just fine. So there's an article in uh, CryptoCoin News this morning from folks at Ripple saying uh, Ripple's strategy to become more decentralized than Bitcoin. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just give you some highlights. If you want to read it, head over to CryptoCoin News. So Stefan Thomas in their blog on the Ripple site said, a key benchmark that we aim to achieve is to become more decentralized than Bitcoin, which at the time of writing is 51% controlled by just five mining pools. This means the largest five pools working together could achieve a 51% attack and reverse transactions double spend at will. For Ethereum, this number is even lower. Only three pools are needed for takeover. So I'll skip down to the part where they say what they're going to do about it. 
Uh, it says today Ripple has 25 validator nodes, which are, as far as I can tell, all trusted nodes that they, you know, have like assigned into their system as people who can do transaction processing. And they're going to diversify that list by recruiting attested validators to the network and replacing their 25. So basically they're saying that one of their validators is the equivalent of a mining pool in either Bitcoin or Ethereum. And this is a claim that I've heard more people than Ripple make. And I, I'm legitimately curious about it. I, I'm sure that with Bitcoin, you get better security from the just the sheer amount of hashing power that's going into it. But with many smaller chains that are still using proof of work, the argument for them continuing to use it relative to a system like this, where you might have 25 trusted parties, but it means that you are basically immune to anything that doesn't happen to those 25 trusted parties. And you don't have to worry about roving bands of you know, miners coming through and messing up your day and stuff like that. So I'm just curious, how does a, a Ripple node or any sort of like a proof of stake node, how does that compare against a mining pool or against a miner in Bitcoin? Well, I think there's a confusion about the role uh, pools have and the power that pools have in Bitcoin. People assume that mining pools are miners or that somehow they own the hash rate or they can control that hash rate in a sustainable manner. Uh, launching a 51% attack is kind of pointless unless you can sustain it. And sustaining a 51% attack is not something that those pools can do on their own. And the reason, again, a lot of the powers in these adversarial systems are illusory. They exist as long as you don't exercise them. So sure, three of the pools have 51% of their hash power, as long as they don't use it to break the consensus rules, because if they do, then the miners who are pointing their hashing power to those pools will simply point it elsewhere. That's a configuration change that takes three seconds to make. It enter, and all of their mining farms point to another pool, one that is not monkeying with the consensus rules. And those mining pools lose their hash rate very, very quickly. And even if they have been able to execute a short-term 51% attack, maybe they double-spend a few transactions and then lose all of their hash rate as it migrates to other pools. You know, the, the actual mining behind the pools is more decentralized than the pools themselves. We do have a centralization problem in the manufacture of ASICs in, in, in Bitcoin. But simply counting pools and, and adding up three pools to 51% attack misses the point. The pools don't control the hash rate behind them. They don't control all of it. They control maybe some of it. I don't think really this argument holds much water. So let me restate that. So the power of the pools, it seems like, is the same power as the conductor in front of the parade, right? Uh, you know, so long as they walk the parade route, then everything is great. And they might have a ton of people behind them. It might be the biggest parade out there. But if they take a left turn and everybody else still thinks that they're going straight, then they basically wind up sacrificing their power in much the same way we've seen many people and companies within crypto, you know, within the Bitcoin space do essentially burning their reputation in order to do something ideological that then winds up totally, you know, destroying their business model. So really, a pool isn't powerful in the same way as one of these validators because ultimately the validators are selected and then they have the power. So just being a validator means you have equal power, whereas just being a pool doesn't mean you have any power. Being a pool that then is able to attract a large proportion of the miners means you have that power. But as you, we've been saying, kind of only as long as, as you don't do anything terrible with it. And then, you know, suddenly you're the pariah. Right. And to the best that I understand, the notion of a pre-approved or pre-validated validator makes Ripple, the company, 
the delegator in the framework, whereas in Bitcoin, it's the tens of thousands of miners who then delegate to specific pools those rights. So it's a little bit of a misnomer to claim that Ripple has, you know, 20 pools, whereas Bitcoin has five, whereas Ripple only has one delegator in their entire system and, and Bitcoin has tens of thousands. We've seen, I keep thinking of, you know, back through the years, all the times when I've seen social media posts saying, oh, this one Bitcoin mining pool is approaching 51% of the network. But the balance of power always shifts. It's the number of times where the dominance of pools in the Bitcoin network has changed is huge. And I do think it's obviously not right to say that, oh, there's only these four, five pools or three pools in Bitcoin. So this is like something to really watch out for. Like you guys have been saying in this whole conversation, Bitcoin has been around since what it was at 2009. And, you know, there's been lots of opportunities for these incentives to abuse power to play out. But so far, they they really haven't. And not at least not in a way that has successfully killed Bitcoin. So I think that's, it's really interesting to look back on history and see what has not happened, which is the death of Bitcoin. And that's always encouraging as we even if we feel concerned about these incentives playing out, we can always look back and say it all worked itself out so far in the end. Right. And, and even in the most extreme example of this with Yifu Gao of Avalon, who was one man in one company that had the mon natural monopoly on ASICs and could have basically owned the hash rate for a very long time. He decided to maximally disseminate those uh, ASIC machines because he didn't want to own a proportion of the hash rate that would kill the golden goose. And it's kind of funny because I like to think of Yifu as the George Washington of mining pools. Because <laughs> he had this power. He could have kinged himself. He could have granted himself kingship in perpetuity and decided to step down for the people. And he has wooden teeth. Just kidding. <laughs> no, but he has a sick ponytail. Um, and it was because the incentive framework was there that if he became the next uh, king, um, that the people would revolt. The other challenge in all of this is making distinctions between theoretical attack factors and the practical implications of using those attack factors. People have difficulty making the distinction between a theoretical and a practical attack vector. So yes, 51% of the hash rate is the amount you need. In fact, less than that, given certain other conditions, in order to conduct a consensus attack on a Bitcoin. Uh, the question is, what is the purpose of that consensus attack and what can you actually achieve? And people focus kind of to the exclusion of everything else. They miss the context. They focus on this magical number, 51%. It's like, okay, 51% attack, you take over Bitcoin. And they imagine that means something a lot more than it actually does. Because at 51% attack, you can't steal anybody's money. You can't take Bitcoin that's not yours. You can't create blocks or transactions that are invalid because the rest of the network will not propagate or accept them. You can't change the consensus rules unilaterally without a backlash. You can't do a lot of the things that people kind of think you can. You know, when they think you take over the Bitcoin network, they don't really think through what that actually means. You can censor transactions and you can, under certain circumstances, double spend some things. But again, that's not going to go undetected for very long, and then you're going to get a backlash. And it's very, very, very big risk for very, very, very little gain. The most likely scenario for such an attack is not somebody who's trying to gain from this, but someone who has resources and wants to damage the network without caring about gaining anything, simply 
for malicious reasons. And usually people imagine that would be a state actor wanting to shut down the network in a, in a malicious way without gaining anything from the 51% attack, just kind of gumming up the works. Again, given the current hash rate, given the kind of energy requirements we're talking about, that involves a very significant financial investment for very little in return, because even if you do manage to gum up the works, it's very likely that the network will recover, respond, change in some fundamental way to take away that capability. And maybe Bitcoin doesn't work very well for a week, and then it comes back stronger and more resilient to that attack. Meanwhile, the attacker has now spent you know, a quarter of a billion dollars launching a pointless attack that only ends up strengthening the network. I think that's the intellectual problem here, which is we have this really clear number, 51. And people focus on that and don't think through the consequences in the context of what happens next. Yeah, you got the 51, you launched your attack on the network, then what? And then what is, is a rather complex situation and not as simple as, as take over the network and kill Bitcoin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content was provided by Jonathan, Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening.